Hello, and welcome to the Bright Spots podcast with Prashant Goel. It brings forward conversations and interviews with insightful people driving important changes in society and work. Topics vary a lot, but the common thread is people committed to advancing how we do things through timeless human values and purpose-driven work. Thanks for listening as we welcome the dawn of a new Monday. Welcome to another episode of the Bright Spots podcast. I'm here today with my guest, Michael Wyant, who is the partner and co-founder, along with David Osborne, who we heard in last week's episode of Team Theory. And Team Theory is really working to bring additional insight to re-examine and I would say revolutionize how hiring is done. And as David told us last week, it's not necessarily rocket science, but there is a lot of structure and clarity that can come when we challenge the status quo way of doing things and that some of our metaphors are outdated. We David mentioned war metaphors. He mentioned plug and play. He mentioned mining. He mentioned fantasy football. And I think that some of these guiding principles are misguided, actually. And so I'm glad to have Michael here today, who brings so much to the table. And he's such a great compliment to David. And David's such a great compliment to him. And which is really cool because one of the things that I've really enjoyed about getting to know David and Michael is just how much willingness to look at themselves in the mirror to gain additional understanding about about their own teamwork and really looking at themselves first so that they would have you know be able to bring that to the teams that they work with and be able to support them and so michael it's amazing the diversity that he brings because he spent the earlier part of his career in the arts and as an opera singer. And he decided at some point that he didn't want that to be the only professional expression, that there's other gifts and talents that he has that he would like to work with. And that also, from a practical perspective, working with the opera put him on the road a lot, and that takes him away from his partner. And so... So team theory is something that opened up along the way and he found himself very motivated and passionate about it. And that's something that's really important to him, bringing this artistic side. So I'm really glad to just kind of give you a few bits and pieces about Michael as we enter this conversation and just say that I'm really thrilled to have him as my guest today and as part of this three-part series we're doing on hiring. So welcome, Michael, and maybe, maybe you have some opening remarks for us. Yeah, no, thank you. Thanks. That was, no, that was a very, um, you make me sound great. I love that. (laughs) But yeah, you know, I think getting involved with with David initially was very almost happenstance thing. And, but it was coming on the heels of, you know, what you kind of just touched on, which is I had been working or I'd been studying, you know, because I wasn't that long out of school. I had been studying as an opera singer. I'd been starting to perform professionally, doing a lot of what in the uh, opera world we call young artist programs, which are basically very, very, very low paid internships for all intents and purposes, but often really, you know, similarly, really wonderful ways to get in contact with or get exposure to certain companies and meet certain people, meet a lot of colleagues, etc. And along the way, it became clear that even without making a full-time living, there was one path that was really would take me on the road a lot. These young artist programs are obviously all over the place, right? And people, there's cutthroat competition to go to any one. 
and then you just go wherever it is. If you're lucky enough to get into anything, you go. And I sort of realized pretty early on that that it was just not going to be something that made me happy. Or conversely, it would make me really unhappy, which isn't the same thing. I didn't like it. I'd done it a bit. It was bad. It was not fun for me. I had gotten through several long distance periods and weathered them just fine. Several of those later, I was going, for me, this can't be my regular way of being. Um, I'll be really unhappy. And so then, I mean, it was kind of like sing when I can and then do kind of anything else I can do when I can do it. I ended up teaching English uh, for a while. English as a second language with a pretty large corporation that sponsored visas. So it would get tons of like pre-college or college in the U.S. hopefuls who were all staying for TOEFLs and whatnot, people from all over the world. And that was fun. It was kind of pick up uh, and put down enough that I could still sing. It was a really nice job for a while, provided enough of a you know supplementary income that I could still, if I needed to take a month and a half off and go do a thing, they had the flexibility to let me go do that gig, but then I could come back pretty quickly. And I would, you know, I have a lot of friends uh, and a lot of people who have friends who are, you know, singers or actors or anyone in the performing arts. I'm sure, you know, like half of them probably are caterers uh, in their downtime, bartenders, all sorts of things like that. And this was something that fit into my life a lot better and was actually pretty interesting to me. And so, you know, I really like languages in general. You have to study a bunch for opera. That's fun. And, and then I really found out that I like teaching. And that's kind of where... That was sort of the biggest takeaway for me was like, I mean, the subject matter was sort of immaterial, but I really liked teaching and I didn't just like teaching. I liked working with adults I was working with who I mentioned most of them were going to college. It was college or grad school. A lot of them were, you know, at least in their 20s. I mean, this wasn't going to be the first college they ever went to. It was going to be a second bachelor's in an English speaking country, which would play really well back home or even just a couple of years of study or a master's degree, of course, or graduate degree of some kind. That was the bulk, but there were a good handful of older professionals who were doing it for work for one reason or another, all the way up into, I mean, students up into their 50s. There's several things I took away that really made an impact, but um, that now I look back on given what I'm doing now and go, oh, that's kind of where that interest or that feeling started. But I really liked helping them. There's a very practical thing we needed to do, which was whatever they were, whatever level they were at in the language, get them one bump up. And then specifically, they might have skills they needed to work on more than others, like writing versus speaking, for example, or the reverse. But really behind the pragmatic layer, there was something, you know, they all had a thing, a next opportunity that was really important for them to get to. This was a hurdle. And I could help them over that hurdle. I like teaching in general, which is fun. I like I liked having a classroom. I like I mean I like the environment, which is fun. And I also you know saw and apologies that I'm working remotely. If you hear my dog in the background making a cameo, I also saw that there were colleagues or other people. Not to throw anyone under the bus, but there were ways of running a classroom that were not fun, that did not help people, that did not get them excited about that goal, that made them sorry they had that goal because now they had to sit through this crap or whatever. And then they ended up just blaming their dads for making them come or something like that. And I thought that's really a shame because that's not what this is about. Even if your dad forced you to come here, there's ways this can set you up for more opportunity in the future period, or you can miss that. And I was really upset when I saw it get missed, especially when I saw it get missed because, for example, other teachers would say, would, would have a lot of very normative ideas, of course, of what does and does not happen in a classroom. And you would think that in a school with students from, you know, dozens of countries around the world, that the idea that uh, classroom demeanor, among other things, is probably culturally dependent to some degree would be clear. It's not, you know, and it was really irritating to see. 
it was really irritating to see, I have to say. Like, uh, it was one of those things where I'm just going, now you have a bunch of people who are learning how to be browbeaten like the American way, and they will remember this. And is this something that is going to be interesting or helpful for the rest of their lives? Or do you even have a perspective that that is what you're inculcating in these people, but this person is not learning in that situation? So, you know, fast forward a ton. I mean, I started working with David in, I basically started recruiting, just straight up recruiting with him. He was doing recruiting and other kinds of team strategy like he's still doing I and mean, like we're all trying to do now and this we hope evolves form but when i started it was like pure recruiting like this is where the resumes come in this is how we screen them this is the first person to talk to these are the questions to ask a data applicant these are the questions to ask a coding applicant and you know so i spent a few months like getting up just getting up to speed with that information and then in a way a lot of what we ended up learning, which ended up being very germane to hiring as a whole, absolutely, happened to come because we were doing exclusively tech hiring, which is, you know, for if anyone doesn't know, it's like last time I heard the unemployment rate for software engineers in the San Francisco Bay Area is zero. Competition is like super fierce. And so quickly it became, and this is where it will link back to the previous, you know, seemingly unrelated story about teaching English. It became clear, like getting more people in the door is really, at, at all is really, really, really hard because they're so picked over. Everyone is looking for them. They're getting 10, I mean, literally 10 LinkedIn messages a day, you know, if you know whatever language is hot at that time. And so we start thinking, well, how can we do better with the ones we've got? And no sooner do you start unpacking that question, then suddenly I'm back in that classroom situation, by which I mean, I'm seeing all of these reasons that people who are actually looking for a job or interested in a job, even if they're, you know, a software engineer with many options, they're still, they're still on their own journey of what is the most interesting next best thing for me, for what I care about, for what I want to do. And there's so much pro forma information that just gets like stamped over this from both sides, mostly from employers. But then you see a lot of candidates rising to it. This is one of those like, I know, you know, I know, Kind of situation. So I know they think what well, I think it's important, how I dress. So I, and then, then you try to game that, right? You go, so I'm going to dress better. Or you go, I'm going to do the opposite of what they think because that'll get their attention or blah, blah, blah. Right. But it's this, it's this huge, highly random causal chain. And it's basically this game that has nothing to do with what actually needs to happen, which is you need to make a meaningful connection. And the reason you need to do that is because ultimately, honestly, you want to be able to say like, hey, we're the company. This is me. This is our team. This is what we're really like. If you're going to do if you're going to do great things with us, if together we're going to do much, much better work, adding you to the team is going to elevate the whole team. You need to know what we're like and you need to be a great complement to that. And so if we hide all of that from you, because like we want to look like we're the coolest startup in the valley, you greatly reduce the chances that that will happen. For me, that's very foolish. And then similarly, when candidates are coming in and going and are worried about, do I say this? Don't I say this? Do I add this line to my resume? Serif font, sans serif font, as if that has anything to do with being forthright about what you want, being forthright about what you need. And then for job seekers, also being forthright about how much you can be and should be willing to wait for the opportunity that is right for you rather than freaking out because an opportunity, because you want a job, let's say, in an extreme case, and people are passing on you. And again, for software engineers, less the problem because they have this embarrassment of riches in terms of choices. But this is someplace where, you know, I think back to auditioning for companies, students who are just starting to enter the professional world, right? Or even in school, because you audition for things within school, right? Every audition you fail, and by the fail, I mean, you don't win the thing, it feels bad, right? 
And then, you know, eventually you have to mature over that, A, because otherwise you, you'll lose your mind. Yeah, yeah. That has nothing to do with it. Like, there's no way you are great for every single thing you stick your, you, you think for, right? There's no way it's a perfect fit. It's a perfect match. You're best for the role. You're better than everyone else, whatever. And so using, you know, your success rate, let's say, as a yardstick for how accomplished you are personally is, is it, I mean, it's just silly. And sort of similarly here in the, in the hiring space, uh, especially for people who do have more anxiety around finding a new job, you know, I'll, I'm talking to uh, job seekers, I'll hear a lot of, even I think in a lot of cases without realizing it, so much of what they're thinking about in terms of potential tactics is about either armoring themselves up or so that they don't face disappointment or like winning the job kind of despite they're being suited for it or just like, how do I look so great that everyone wants me? I mean, it's usually more nuanced than that, of course, but underneath it, that seems to be the main thrust versus how do I find out, find out as quickly as possible if this is if there's the potential for magic here, so to speak. And then if it's not, I leave because I want that. They want that. Everyone's better if we do that. Man, this is amazing. I mean, I'm enjoying listening to you so much. I feel, I feel like there's such a wealth to digest in everything you just said. It's almost like our orientation to what a victory is there's misunderstanding inside that because the applicant or candidate is coming at it from like, you know, I want to get this job or I at least want to receive this offer so I know if it's an option. And the other person is kind of just like, what is the highest quality candidate? But it's also abstracted from what their reality is. And I'm loving how that's all woven together with your personal experience and how this Mm -hmm. understanding even came to take place inside you because there was this moment where necessity was kind of the mother of invention. And and you were like, okay, well, there's a a limited pool, so we need to get creative. It Mm -hmm. called for creativity. It called for looking at the same challenge through different lenses. And then by looking at it through a different angle, you saw where some of the flaws in the status quo model were. And you were like, whoa, actually... It's not so much about the limitation of the pool. It's actually that the status quo defines the challenge in a way that doesn't serve the ends they're seeking and how that all tied together with your experience, both in the realm Mm -hmm. of getting singing gigs, but also more importantly, with everything you were sharing in this context about the teaching. It just seems like the ends weren't really that clearly defined and or or to the extent they were defined, just misguided. So all of that is really rich because it's almost like you were following your own path and your own trail of breadcrumbs. And it was it was just deepening and deepening your understanding of it. But it was so organic at the same time that it's really beautiful to reflect on that's just how life works in many ways you know but really cool no totally um when the teaching thing is the other thing that always makes me think in a lot of areas right a lot right now you know the idea of motivation and motivational psychology in a more nuanced way like not in a carrot and stick way but in a you know at least um, at least topically more meaningful way is very out there very talked about a lot and i think the teaching thing for example you know another way of phrasing approach I would get frustrated with would be like, how does sending someone back to their home country with a bad taste in their mouth about studying English at all, 
help anyone in specific? How does it help in the abstract? If you think, you know, love of learning is great, sort of generally, if you like the language, I mean, if any of that is there, how does this help? That doesn't mean you can solve everyone's problems. It does mean, I don't know if you've heard the, the phrase before, um, speaking of language learning truisms, where they say, what is the best grammar textbook for short language here? The answer is it's the one you use. Because if you don't take into account the fact that what motivates you is going to have a huge impact on the success of whatever endeavor, meaning it doesn't matter if you know nine out of 10 experts agree that this book that's this five inches thick is the most pedagogically sound or whatever, if you hate it, you're not going to do it. Conversely, if something is super engaging, I mean, ultimately, it's, it's kind of like worrying about putting on the, the finer touches when you're ready for the finer touches. If you really need to get something going, get it going. Don't do other stuff. And so in terms of hiring, it, it's not, not a one-to-one analogy, but for example, we get to the very, very final stages, meaning a few different finalist candidates have been entered by a team, interviewed by a team of, I think, four people. Yeah, four people. And one candidate really, really stands out. And they're going, we love this guy. We love this guy. I just like everything he said. And his approach was really structured, but still flexible. It didn't sound like he was reciting it sound, you know, a best practices manual and he really listened to us and this, that, and the other thing. And then somebody on the call basically all of a sudden goes, oh, oh, but they haven't worked with software as a service before. And I'm thinking, well, you basically just described like someone who I would entrust to like babysit my children for five years if I had to, you know, and teach them the, the, the ways of, you know, critical thinking. <laughs> like you talked about somebody who was incredible. And suddenly because of, well, so suddenly you're going, you're like line editing the resume and going, I don't see this one thing. Therefore, it must not be there. Therefore, everything this team of four people who each spent a, a full hour with this person individually came away with where they're just, holy cow, wonderful goes out the window. So I'm glad I was on the call. And, and that's a situation where, you know, why does this happen? Who knows exactly? Fear gets triggered. Oh, did everything we just said not matter? Or are we missing something that what's the key thing that is the thing we miss it, we're missing? And I don't think they would think of it this way, but it is a little bit of like silver bullet thinking, right? It's not totally dissimilar from the like, no, but what's the thing? What is the book I should read to know right. what is like, yes, I want to train for my marathon, but only when I know the only way to do it, that makes me a little bit smarter than everyone else because they do last year's way. And that's so silly because this blog says blah, blah, blah. And then you get in this just people who uh, are just like stuck in this morass of mediocre articles or advice or hearsay or whatever. And so when David says, for example, that this is not rocket science, you know, I would agree because a lot of the time what we're doing is not like, okay, here's the next level thing. We're going, hey, did you do some, we think there are some fundamental things. We really think you'll agree when we lay them out. Did you do any of them, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. So for example, from this call, it was, it was for a sales position. The, I kind of came back and I was like, okay, well, and I said more or less what I just said to you. I was like, you just spent four hours collectively with this person. You all told me all of the things you think he is capable of. You talked about how much you personally want to work with him and feel like, and feel, you know, concrete behaviorally based reasons why you think that would go really well. You told me how suited he was to the particular type of challenge you have, not in terms of the product, obviously, because that was, you know, he did not have software as a service experience, but in terms of the numbers and what types of uh, customers you're trying to reach and whatever. So given all of that, are you more confident that all of those wonderful things you just talked about will handily take care of this I've never sold software as a service before problem, or are you more confident in the reverse that having not touched this, he will be out of his element. He will stop returning your emails. He will go home depressed every day and your company will fail. 
you know, which is it? It's so great, everything you're saying, because I feel like one of the principles I take away, well, there's a few principles I take away from what you're saying. One is, first of all, how do you define the challenge? Can you ask better questions? And when you ask better questions, like high, better meaning higher quality, they get more the reality of the situation you're trying to address in a way that is more likely to realize an outcome that's more in line with your goals. That I think is is fundamental, but overlooked oftentimes. And that's something that you guys are bringing to the table. A second thing is, I feel like this is in and around so many challenges. And this is just a very specific expression in the realm of hiring. But this idea of the one right way, because it's almost... It's almost like there's some external standard that we're like trying to live up to. So we're like waiting for somebody to tell us that that's the way to do it because that feels safest rather than trust what our natural considerable intellect and and intuition and feeling about the situation can, can tell us. And that if we approach it from just like, what is right for us in this situation relative to what we're trying to realize mm-hmm. as opposed to mm-hmm. what feels safe, but almost always limits the situation and the possibilities that you can explore. That's a really important insight. I think that's a really important insight. So I'm just appreciating how you have approached this. And, and I'm actually, I'm reading a book right now that that I really am enjoying. And it's by Ray Dalio. It's this book called Principles. And it's the type of book that I never would have picked up even a year ago, but something drew me to read it. And it's because my own limitations of what I was willing to open my mind to as an influence have expanded over the last year. But before that, for example, I would have thought, okay, here's this hedge fund guy. He looks at the economy and businesses as a machine, which is so different from how I look at it. And yet underneath all of that are so many brilliant understandings and ways of approaching challenges. And one of the things that he says very specifically in his hiring is yes, experience is relevant. And you know we've made mistakes by undervaluing experience. But the bigger point is, is who is shining and who is shining like relative to us. And, and, then, and then also having processes beyond the hiring to continue to challenge people to grow and to continue. Of course, that, that comes a little bit down the line. But I felt like his way of describing it is so connected to what you just described with this very real world example of software as service. Because one time he hired He hired a person who formerly was a Bible salesman to come in to work sales of a research process they developed at a hedge fund. And it just indicates the irrelevance of certain things. Like what is actually important? What are you prioritizing in terms of the quality of your candidates? Well, and what's funny, and and, and I know David likes to talk about this a lot too, is that all of us personally, and then with our friends, and then often with people we admire the kinds of situations like you described, you know, from the what seems like an oddball hire for Ray Dalio. I mean, that happens all the time, right? Like if I say, talked a, a bunch about how, you know, I did this and I did that and I did teaching and these are the ways I think that's like what I do now. 
people are making these like very discursive connections all the time and being everyone has this experience when they whether they change careers or not where they'll go oh gosh this thing here is like this thing from this very seemingly unrelated part of my life or it's from my home life or the same whatever like the connections those sorts of connections are happening all the time and then you turn around and you go into a lot of typical hiring processes when we like first come in and it's this person hasn't worked in a startup before. They can't work in a startup. You're going, why can't they work in a startup? Well, the last person we hired who hadn't worked in a startup before was total dud, even though their resume was amazing. Why was their resume amazing? Because they worked for, you know, Fortune 500 company, whatever, which is, and they had a good title. Again, I'm kind of, you know, simplifying and exaggerating to make the, the point, but you're going, A, why did you think great title is relevant to your particular situation? B, what about what you offer would make them successful and would be interesting to them and even matches their experience, right? If someone's never worked on a team of four or not for a long time because they're too busy, because they're some massive semi-global scale, but you're going, do they want to? Is, Is this, did you check whether these things were even congruent or interesting? At the same time, if you flip that the other way and you go, okay, does someone need to have worked in a startup? A, as if all startups are created the same. But you go, what is ours? What is the size? What, how organized are we? How disorganized are we? How you know, hierarchical are we? How whatever? You, go through, you have to go through all of these parameters. And it's, it's not complicated work, but you do want to be thorough, right? And then you go, okay, what do we offer? I like to sometimes talk in terms of, um, I'll say like activators or inhibitors. You have skills and you have the, you have the things that are amplifiers, say that amplify those skills for a person and you have things that inhibit the expression of those skills. And so you go, what do we need? Let's say we need a quote unquote growth hacker. Okay, fine. Who are they going to work with at this company specifically? How are they going to work with them? Like, are they chatting a lot? Are they in separate offices? Are they slacking back and forth all day from each working at home, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And if you have a strong sense of the skills you need, and then you go, what are the things that our environment offers that we think are positives? Let's say we have a really flexible work policy in terms of you've got to do your work, but you can come and go when you want. It should, should roughly add up to X hours a week or whatever. Let's say you do that. The whole point is not that anyone needs to like that. The whole point is not that everyone likes that. The point is some people love that because it, it not just because then they can do whatever they want to do at home. A lot of people feel more creative at certain times of day or more productive at certain times of day. A lot of people like having the independence to match their own rhythms and work habits to when they need to do certain types of things, which isn't to say you have to do this as a company, but if you do, then you know you can recognize some people are going to love that. It's going to totally amplify their ability to make good on the skills that they say they have, which is great. And then similarly, like a lot of things are inhibitors. And it depends person to person, these things change. But so first of all, what are things that we offer that you have to like or you will be inhibited? And then also realistically, what are things that are could be inhibitors for a lot of people? So for example, we just, you know, we were talking to someone where a client where there was some some disagreement on the sort of on the higher leadership team it was really respectful, but it wasn't like everyone was all in the same boat all the time and really, really cleanly working together. They were definitely like negotiating relationships as they were talking. This was a little while ago. And you could see that, OK, they would as part of that, they would push back at each other fairly fairly hard, super respectfully, right? They weren't being mean, but it was like you would put something forth and then people would be like, is that really going to work? Could often be the first reaction. And so there you're going to go, okay, probably not a lot of people are going to see that as something that makes them feel amazing as an amplifier. But some people, and this is what we found with the candidates, some people you would try and sort of explore their appetite for that sort of thing. And you would get clear stories that suggested that, yeah, this happened to them in the past. They didn't like it, so on and so forth. It could be hard to get that, but there are ways to do it. Um, some people, clearly this kind of thing, it's like water off a duck's back, so to speak. They're just kind of not 
bothered by it. And so in that case, you're going, cool, this thing that might turn off some people or might be difficult, even if it works for us. For some people, it won't be a difficulty for them, right? It won't be something that they get into the job and they go, oh, I didn't think it was like this. And then they feel pushed out. And then suddenly three months later, you're looking to fill the role again. So it's really, it's really about taking all of those all of those factors into consideration at once and also realizing, and I think in some ways this is the hardest part, but then I have the most concrete example about it, which is that in a lot of cases, the same characteristic of your company can be one or the other, depending on who you're talking about, meaning can be an amplifier or can be an inhibitor. And if that's the case, then make it an amplifier, meaning that's something that then goes into your search. You look for people who want that. It seems pretty simple, but people don't do it. So for example, we were talking to a national nonprofit and they were opening, or I think they had opened, they had recently opened a branch in San Antonio, Texas, but they had not yet hired for this kind of more senior position they were trying to hire for and were struggling with. And one of the things I noticed in the very first call with them was that they kept inadvertently basically apologizing for the fact that the job was in San Antonio. It's like they couldn't believe that anyone who was involved with startups, they could not believe that any of those people would not want to live in New York or San Francisco. And I'm like, have you not seen all the BuzzFeed articles that are like, New York, you're, you know, you're really getting me down. I hate you now. Have you not seen all the statistics about housing? I can guarantee you there is someone who went, you know, did their master's degree at Arizona State and loves the mountains or whatever and loves the desert and loves Tex-Mex food who does not love paying $4,000 a month for a shoebox. I can guarantee you that, but you have to present it that way, right? <laughs> and it was kind of like, they were like, oh, you know what I mean? And it was like, do you think someone who comes in here and hates the town is going to last long in this job? And they were like, no. And then I was like, so look for people who would love to live here. You recently, you loved the city and now you have two kids and you love <sighs> right, the desert and you right. love space. And, and the cost per square foot is something that I probably don't even want to know because I would cry. Look for that. I mean, this last example is perfect. It does require additional perspective and it does call on a person to change their point of view on how they're looking at the situation. Some of what comes across to me is it's almost like, you know, the resume has its role and for a long time, our society was really mm -hmm. oriented towards looking really good on paper. And it seems like part of what we're talking about now is a movement beyond that. It's, it's almost like the resume could open the door and then, yeah, you know, that's interesting. We, you know, we can get to a feel for who you are, but it can't substitute for the depth of a human being and all of their inclinations and all of you know, for example, what, what hours of the day they're most productive and how they're going to fit inside a team, what the relationship to a particular town might be, and all these elements that were just kind of squeezed out of the process in some way or other, or not necessarily squeezed out, but maybe not given their due weight and due attention and not oriented with with this broader understanding that could be there. And so when I hear you speak, I feel like David said, you know, I'm very pro-human. And sometimes all of us are pro-human in some way or other. We want to be pro-human. We just sometimes lose sight of what that means, actually. And I feel because you guys have been looking at this so closely, you're just able to hold a light up to some things that really require much more depth, structure, but also some things that are just mm -hmm. need the yeah, no, permission and support think, to look um, at those things in a different way. On, on the employer side, but on the candidate side too, one of the things that's really difficult 
this happened to me earlier today with someone I was interviewing, which was I was speaking with someone who I got explicit information that suggested very clearly that this was not going to be a very good fit for a variety of reasons. This was someone who had come from a very senior, and this person was really awesome, but it was a very senior global position in this function and talking about moving to a much smaller company with much smaller pay. It's exciting, but it's a different kind where you're doing a lot of individual contributor work, I should add, right? And, and this gradually came out, but what will happen is sometimes, sometimes I'll be trying to level with a candidate and be like, I'm not telling you you're not going to like this job, but I'm kind of telling you I have a strong sense you may not like this and uh, let's kind of expose the elephant in the room, so to speak. Because if I'm wrong, I want to be, I want to know I'm wrong, but I don't, because I don't want to guess, but I also don't want to, I want to make absolutely sure that like, you know, what is waiting for you should you take this, what your actual day to day would be like. And there, I mean, everything I said, uh, it was well, I don't want to close down a conversation. I was, it's fine to close down a conversation. It's fine to close down a conversation. But, and then it would be this description of normally I have these kind of resources at my large corporate position. And if you're not willing to invest, you can't get results. And I was like, we're more bootstrapped than that, period. That is not the situation here. You will not have resources in that way. If you believe you can't do work without those resources, which was something that was kind of said, this won't be the thing for you. You may be absolutely right, but whoever's going to take this job needs to try, right? That is what it, what they're offering. And spoken to several people who have done that kind of thing in this context yeah. and are willing to give it a, a try. Does that mean it's going to work? Not necessarily. But the point is, I'm sitting there going, why do you want to give it a shot? If, if everything I'm saying is stuff you previously said you're kind of not interested in, and I'm trying to be gracious and give you an out, but you know, I guess I was too subtle about it. Doesn't resonate and, with you. And this is a more extreme case, but a lot of the time, there's something where people are uh, on the candidate side often seem to have this drive to keep all options open. And I can totally understand that, but but I'm going, if it's not a good option for you, just don't keep it open because every t- you know minute it stays open, that's even if it's an infinitesimal amount, that's energy it's taking away from your search that should be for your good thing. It is distracting. I'm seeing it the same way. That's brilliant, Michael. The way I read it is there's a kind of a fear of scarcity in it somehow. I need to keep my options open. And what is it to me what the opposite of fear of scarcity mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. is self-trust. And knowing that if you're listening to yourself and you're feeling into and reasoning through what it is that you actually want, what your actual inclinations are, what you enjoy, then you can follow that path. And you can say no in the meantime to something, trusting that something that's more aligned with who you are, you're going to find a way to create that opportunity. Mm-hmm. The thing that I guess I haven't really spoken to or that's not quite included is also there is something I want from candidates. I am going back and bringing you to the company. So I don't want someone who can do great things for them merely. I want someone who can do great things for them for whom this is a dream job, who wants to stay there and grow there until it doesn't make sense to grow anymore. I don't want... so. I also sometimes will hear uh, on both sides of the equation, but the candidate version of this is people who are very experienced who are like, oh, no, no, I'm confident I can do great things for them. And I'm like, I'm confident you can do great things for them too. I'm worried about you leaving after three months, which is not good for them. Okay. Right? Up to that point. And so I do know, you know, I haven't figured out how to ask that with finesse, I guess. But, you know, basically it's like, that's what I'm trying to get at is like, is this something you're going to love that you're going to stay at? A, because you should... I think you should do that. If you don't agree, that's fine. But like, that's what I'm also going to bring to these people, right? I'm not bringing people who are going to leave after two months on purpose because every so often it happens and it is really painful, you know, for the whole client team. So some of what David said last week 
you're adding a lot of texture to, I'm getting a better understanding. He was talking about the 360 fit. And now I really start to understand what 360 fit is, you know, from what you're describing, all these elements that you're bringing now. And it becomes so clear. It's not about, it's almost like the metrics are outdated. The way we're evaluating these opportunities, Mm -hmm. it, it no longer serves us in the way that it maybe once did. We're seeing... We're seeing new realms of possibility and it's that your fulfillment matters, you know, that your purpose, your sense of purpose matters, your sense of alignment with what you're doing really matters. And, and that if you're on the candidate side, that you're really looking out for that from the candidate and that if you're on the employer side, you're saying, look, this type of person does exist. Step forward with what the position is and trust and trust that you're going to create you're mm-hmm. going to create opportunities for the right person to arrive. And so the, this chance for mm-hmm. match, you know, David brought up a statistic he said that based on some surveys that you've done with people in positions, say up to three months after they've arrived, it's that you've changed the game from like 20% success rate of like really good fit to 80% success rate. And that, that speaks to me of really getting the art and science of what this is. And I feel like we're getting a taste of that in this conversation with you both, what that actually looks like, what that actually means. Yeah. And it's, it's, and the reason we say 360 is it's hard. It's not just that it's hard to break it down to like, you know, it, these are the three subcomponents of fit. It's that I don't think you should do that. I think you, one, should keep it open and be like, there's always another thing it could be. Or also in our specific situation, whatever company we are, maybe it makes more sense to divide into four, maybe it's two, maybe it's whatever. You know, whatever we say, the components are culture and skills or culture skills and I don't know what, you know. But the point is some things really matter to people and some things don't. Some people really like certain recognition structures, like explicit praise. Some people don't. It's embarrassing or they don't care. It doesn't mean one thing or the other. And there's so many facets where, you know, on the on the flip side, I don't want to make it sound like you've got to go into so much detail that it takes you four months to even figure out all of the, you know, the elements of your culture or whatever. But again, most of what we're seeing is not that. Most of what we're seeing is not really even starting with the many, if any, of the basic questions. It's like if you're going out to eat in New York City at dinner time and you don't have a reservation, people are like, what do you want? And you're like, yummy. <laughs> that doesn't get you anywhere. So you're like, okay, what do you want? And they're like, the best restaurant. I'm like, that doesn't get you anywhere. I want the best marketer. You want to pay $250,000 a year? No, we don't have that. Okay, so why do you even think they're the best? Also, by the way, you know, there's all these, these, these things that come up where you're going, the search is a lot easier if you have some parameters that you really care about because you think about it. It's, it's like you don't want to be in the fight with your partner where you're just, I want something. What? I don't care. How about Mexican? No. You know, how about this? No, that's not right. And that's what a lot of hiring is, right? They're like, we need someone who's a great and they say something big. You go, how about this person? No, too much, whatever. How about this person? I love that there's Harvard. Have you ever met anyone stupid from Harvard? Well, of course. Well, then why is Harvard a good thing just by itself? You know, on and on and on. But if you're going, do you need someone who who can be on a small team that doesn't really know protocol wise, that is like really figuring out how they're going to structure themselves all the time? They talk about that. Yes. We're really actively evolving that right now in our startup. That's really common. Not only is it important that this person 
be familiar with that so they don't get turned off and leave. Some people love that. So it's like, if that's really crucial, put that in your search criteria in some way. And all the time when we work with clients on the really early side of really just mapping, we call it mapping, mapping the role. What are all of the different needs we have, skills-wise, culture-wise, structurally, whatever, and how do those map to different kinds of example people, you know, almost like buyer personas in a way. I mean, all the different ways people might express that. It's not only you can show, okay, whatever it might be, when you've really completed that, or even halfway through, all of the time people are like, oh, this one thing that we were saying is really important, it's not that important. The, oh, this one thing we said that's really important, now I'm seeing there's two versions of it, only one of which we mean, and the other one we absolutely don't want. Things like that. That happens all the time. And people are discovering it themselves. Half the time, I'm just sitting there going, you want more of a facilitator or more of a visionary? And they're just like, facilitator, we argue a lot. I'm like, well, that that's re- that really makes things a lot more specific. Yeah. So what, I, what I'm taking away, I mean, I feel... I feel very good while we're having this conversation. I have like warm sensations in my chest and just appreciating you a lot, Michael, and your way of creating insight. Because I think it's, there's a lot of, the, the phrase that comes to mind is like independence of thought. You know, you're really, you're really working through things in a way where you're applying your intelligence to practical problems and um, in coming up with solutions that are meaningfully different from what most people are doing today, you know? So that's awesome. And what I notice in myself is like, is how does, how do I sometimes use like a concept of what I think I want? And then I use that concept potentially to, there's different paths. I could, I can refine the concept as more information comes in and then it goes down from the level of concept to something that actually exists as a practical reality on the ground as the information comes in to shape that into something more realistic. Or I can stay very attached to what my concept is. And then anything, and it's so, even though that concept is just the surface level of the challenge and because I stay attached to it, I close my eyes, I'm close-minded to other realms of of opportunity. And I don't, in this case, for example, see the people that could be more supportive of me. If I never opened my mind to reading this book with Ray Dalio, for example, I would I would have been the one that lost because it's so enriching for me right now. He's such a brilliant, beautiful man who's created such meaningful innovations. So mm. th- this is in a way, you know, there's so many different ways we could try to categorize what we're talking about here. But one that's as good as any is about open-mindedness, actually, and not even seeing how closed-mindedness functions in ourselves, even though that's not our intention, of course. Nobody wants to be closed-minded, but we're not seeing how that operates in a way that limits our effectiveness and our fulfillment, for that matter. No, absolutely. And again, we're always, we always say it's not rocket science. And then we go, well, okay, but it is trickier than, than maybe it first appears because, um, you know, just speaking to the open-mindedness piece, that's the part that is really hard to, if that's not already there with someone we're working with, then it's a really hard, it's a really hard working relationship. If it is, there's a lot we can do to guide it. Yeah. But if it's not there, that's a problem because invariably what we're looking for is, you know, I'm saying like, we want very specific stuff and you should know what you offer and what you need and blah, blah, blah. And be really concrete, really specific about that. Well, most people think they were before we even enter the scene. They think they were in the job description. They're like, look at like, that's 25 bullets. That's so many bullets. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of like, how do you go? Okay, I said specific, but not any of that. And 
you know, I don't want to just like negate everything you did and then start off on the wrong foot. But really what it's about is saying, while you search for explicit things that you're going to search for kind of needs to be a difficult one by nature, right? This is not the obvious stuff, because if it were, you wouldn't be having difficulty hiring for this role, right? In a sense. So it's it's almost like you could put a timestamp on it and be like, if this took you less than 30 minutes, but in reverse, right? If it took you less than whatever, you did not work hard enough. <laughs> you did not think hard enough about what this really needs to be. Or if your team did not argue for more than an hour, maybe you didn't really get into it. Now, I don't think that's always true, of course. So that's why you can't do that. But that's kind of the feeling, right? It's like it needs to be open-minded exploration. So you do need to be calling into question really everything. I mean, just thinking critically about every piece. Is this is three to five years experience and a junior role something I meant? Where did those numbers come from? Do I personally really think they mean anything? Or would I honestly look at people without that? If I would, you know, take it out immediately. That kind of thing. And a lot of times it's almost one of those like abstract, or you're going to go more abstract or at least more general from maybe the principles you started with as you kind of try and get more in touch with the deeper needs for the role, for you personally, for your team, whatever. And then you build back out to specifics again from there, right? It does need to be with an open mind, you know, kind of almost audit what you've been doing so far and really ask yourself what's under it that is not fully explored. If someone doesn't have the open mindedness to say, yeah, I probably didn't fully explore something. What's under this that is not fully explored? If they don't have that. Then working the way we work anyway is, uh, is super hard. Because it's not, you know, in terms of plug and play, like it's not like go find a great whatever and stick them in and then you're going to have a great test. And this gets back to in a different through a different lens, everything we've been speaking about in a way, because it speaks to who your clients are, actually, and that you guys know Mm -hmm. who you are. So, you know, who best you work with. And I'm guessing by the time most of them show up, they've experienced challenge to the degree that it's already created some open-mindedness and they're hopefully willing to Mm -hmm. explore further with you guys. And the one encouragement I'd offer to anybody who's even playing with their hiring practices is just, I know the challenge of being in execution mode and how there can be so many things to do, but this is the type of thing Mm -hmm. where it's, you're kind of investing in your long-term because it's about your people, it's about your culture, it's about your own satisfaction based on who you're working with and who you're bringing into your everyday life. But this is the type of thing that is a strategic investment and deserves prioritization mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, like people people are everything. They're they're who you're going to be doing your business with and they're going to be who you're spending your time with. So you want to you want to mm-hmm. be passing, you know, in the consulting world, what we call the airport test. If if the flight, you know, if the flight gets delayed for four hours, you want to be okay to spend that time at the airport with this person. And it just says something about the over, you know, that goes even broader than the quality of your business, which is the quality of your life and how this all, you know, directly impacts that. I would say as far as, especially um, because the execution mode point is a great one and is really true. And we often have found there are some people that not a small number of the clients we end up working with actually are people who will initially be in contact with and we'll tell them what we do and blah, blah, blah. And they'll tell us what they do. And we'll be like, your company is so cool. And then they'll kind of go dark. And we're like, oh, that's too bad. We really liked them. They had a good conversation, whatever. And then they'll come back like seven, eight months later and go, okay, I kind of was just trying to do it on my own. It didn't work. (laughs) Yeah, they've really often had, yeah, for some reason, whether that's they tried a bunch of other solutions, whether that's they tried a bunch of internal stuff, whether that's they read every book on hiring that's, you know, on the Amazon bestseller list and then whatever it is. But 
I think the difficulty is heard. I don't remember where someone said this to me, but there was ready, aim, fire, of course. Everyone likes, I think there's even a book, right? That's ready, fire, aim, or it's a common phrase, but ready, fire is not enough, <laughs> right? You've got to know what you're aiming at. And if that's really changing or super unclear or or it vacillates between the two, then being in execution mode isn't going to help you very much. It be, right. can't, right? You're just going to keep firing and I'm like, take off the blindfold though, you know? Yeah, right. So, so that's so, a good yeah, image. It's a great point to bring up that part because it is also when you're so, it's a thing that can, hiring is an activity that can create such anxiety on both sides of the table, potentially that it gets very easy to lose sight of stuff because it's not just there's a million things going on. It's also often that emotions are high or feelings of different kinds of feelings of fear or anxiety, again, on both sides of the table can get triggered really easily. I mean, again, that that conversation about the person who everyone loved and then suddenly didn't have software as a service on his resume, like that's, to me, I interpret that as a fear-based reaction. I, I do so, as well. I think that it's yeah. a very uncertain enterprise to hire people. And it is uncertain, right? It's not perfect ever, but you can really reduce the uncertainty if you all the all this stuff I've been been jabbering about. But if you, you know, really think about what you're looking for, yeah. you really think about how you and your team interact with that and shape that reality. It's not just like you pick something and you're you're not part of the equation and so on and so forth. Yeah. So and, and you know, as we reference the numbers that back it up, that you know that your results speak for themselves. So I'm thinking we're we're drawing towards a close, although I feel like I could have this conversation for a while, but I feel like I'm learning so much. But to draw it to a close, what would I say? What is your what is your wish of how this impacts others around you? And where would you like to see yourselves going with this over the next stretch of time? Great question. The thing I care about most, I would say, in the impact really goes back to the, you know, the English teaching story and that I, you know, I kind of opened with the wasted opportunity or the thing that could have been a big plus being nothing or being a huge negative. You know, I think jobs are like that. If any of us have had you know, truly terrible jobs in the past, you know, you remember that for a long time. And if any of us have ever been on a team that felt like the dream team, I don't care if it was when mm. you were 12, you'll still remember it, right? You know, that feeling of working in concert with other people, and you know how great it is, you know, how great you feel, you know, how great it makes other parts of your life. So, you know, my big hope is just to see more of those relationships happening, or people being in positions that they love being in, being in jobs, I mean, you know, roles that they love being in, and and really just see people in general uh, who are hiring, treating it, uh, treating the activity as what it is, right? Which is potentially, at its best, making an unforgettable relationship happen for, for everybody involved, and keeping that as the measure of success. I mean, I'll often there are a lot of a lot of recruiting companies or even recruiting software things like Hired.com or whatever. A lot of those will say things as part of their proof points, money back guarantee if they don't stay in the job for you know three months or six months or even a year. And I'm kind of thinking, I mean, I get why that's important for certain kinds of hiring, I guess, but I don't think butts and seats should be the way we are. That shouldn't be the goal. Again, that shouldn't be what you're aiming at, in my opinion, especially not for important positions, especially not for companies that are really trying, a lot of people are in startups because they want to redefine how people do something or how they look at something. And I'm like, you're already that kind of person. So do that with the team, you know, and start, start with the first thing, start with the very first impression before you hire anybody and treat the entire process. Like, yeah, that's your goal is bringing somebody who for me personally, and for the rest of my team, is going to be unforgettable uh, in the good way, <laughs> not in a bad way. <laughs> Wow, what a what a wish. And I share that wish with you. That's awesome. 
So this has been another episode of the Bright Spots podcast. And my guest today, a real delight to have this conversation with Michael Wyant of Team Theory. And we're going to continue the conversation in the third part of this series. And we're going to invite David back. And Nita Baum of Be Free is going to be alongside us. And we're going to have a wonderful conversation together. So thank you for listening today and wishing you all the best out there. And, uh, and that's a wrap. All the best.